right now, the fact is that the only allowable explanation for racial disparities in institutions is racism. We are tearing down meritocratic standards. We're tearing down behavioral standards in the criminal law. And we are tearing down as a consequence the very possibility of civilization. They are not going to acknowledge that there is, in fact, a astronomically higher rate of criminal offending among blacks than among whites. But you are never allowed to say, are there group differences on av- in average of academic skills or of behavior that would result in a disparate outcome. It's a mystery that the Black Lives Matter activists, they had a choice. They could have taken the side of Black criminals or they could have taken the side of Black victims. If you were coming at this de novo, you wouldn't necessarily predict that the activists would take the side of the criminals. You're not allowed to talk about rates of obesity. You know, we've had this campaign now to say that obesity is is healthy, which is a complete lie. You will be on a crusade to find phantom racism that does not exist. And while you're on your phantom crusade, more Black lives will be lost. After the George Floyd race riots, classical music, like every other artistic form, whether it was theater, art museums, dance, they all had the same nervous breakdown and they all decided that they had killed George Floyd. To be white today is to have a target on your back and to be a straight white male is to be absolutely doomed. Welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. This is episode 31, Disparate Impact, with our very special guest, Heather McDonald. I'm your host, Alan Woolen. I recently read Heather McDonald's excellent new book called When Race Trumps Merit. And in various sections of the book, Heather takes a deep dive into the arts, classical music, opera, and art itself. Her book inspired me to include in this episode some of my favorite classical and operatic pieces. Regular listeners of this podcast already know that I view music as a side door into deep thinking and feeling, and this episode will be no exception. My goal in featuring this music will be twofold. For listeners who are already enthusiastic fans of classical music, well, The accompanying pieces will prepare and open your mind for the messages of Heather's book. For those of you who are not already fans of classical music, my hope is that the clips I will play today will awaken within you a desire to explore classical music on a deeper level and to come to appreciate the great gift to humanity which this music represents. The piece you are hearing was composed by Johann Sebastian Bach 
a German composer who died at the age of 65 in the year 1750. I'm no expert on Bach, nor am I an expert on classical music in general. But the thing I remember most about Bach's story, besides his phenomenal music, is that he had 20 children by two wives, 10 of whom survived into adulthood and four of whom became notable composers in their own right. And his fertile gametes were surpassed only by his prolific mind, which composed hundreds of pieces for violin, cello, piano, organ, harpsichord, as well as vocal arrangements. One could easily spend a lifetime exploring Bach's many wonders. So you might as well get a head start and begin now. After all, if not now, when? Heather McDonald's book revolves around a concept called disparate impact, a term which also plays a key role in many of Thomas Sowell's books and essays. In fact, I first learned about the concept of disparate impact when I started reading Sowell. In his 2010 collection of essays called Dismantling America and Other Controversial Essays, Sowell introduces the concept of disparate impact in this way. The growing complexity and murkiness of civil rights law over the years recalls the painful saying, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. The original Civil Rights Act of 1964 was very straightforward in forbidding discrimination. But even before that act was passed, there were already people demanding more than equality of treatment. Some wanted equality of end results, some wanted restitution for past wrongs, and some just wanted as much as they could get. Opponents of the Civil Rights Act said that it would lead to racial quotas and reverse discrimination. Advocates of the act not only denied this, they wrote the language of the law in a way designed to explicitly prevent such things. But judges over the years have interpreted the Civil Rights Act to mean what its opponents said it would mean, rather than what its advocates put into the plain language of the legislation. A key notion that has created unending mischief, from its introduction by the Supreme Court in 1971 to the current firefighters case, is that of disparate impact. Any employment requirement that one racial or ethnic group meets far more often than another is said to have a disparate impact and is considered to be evidence of racial discrimination. In other words, if Group X doesn't pass a test nearly as often as Group Y, then there is something wrong with the test, according to this reasoning, or lack of reasoning. This implicitly assumes that there cannot be any great difference between the two groups in the skills, talents, or efforts required. That notion is the grand dogma of our time, an idea for which no evidence is asked or given, and an idea that no amount of contradictory evidence can change in the minds of the true believers or in the rhetoric of ideologues and opportunists. Trying to reconcile that dogma with the principle of equal treatment for all has led courts into feats of higher metaphysics that the medieval scholastics could be proud of. The dogma survives because it is politically useful, not because it has met any test of facts. Innumerable facts against it can be found around the world and down through history. All sorts of groups in all sorts of countries have been demonstrably better than other groups at particular things, whether economic, intellectual, political, or military. This fact is so blatant that only people with great cleverness can manage to deny the obvious. 
That cleverness is what creates the tangled web of confusion that has plagued civil rights cases for decades. So we'll get specific with three choice examples of blatant differences between groups. Does anybody seriously doubt that blacks usually play basketball better than whites? And this one? Does anybody seriously doubt that the leading cameras and lenses in the world have long been produced by Germans and Japanese? Let's not forget the Jews. Or that Jews have been overrepresented among the top performers in various intellectual fields. In the preceding passage from Dismantling America, Sowell calls disparate impact ideology the grand dogma of our time. I want to emphasize this point, so let me play that one sentence again. That notion is the grand dogma of our time, an idea for which no evidence is asked or given, and an idea that no amount of contradictory evidence can change in the minds of the true believers or in the rhetoric of ideologues and opportunists. From my experience reading Sowell, he chooses his words very carefully. So when he says that disparate impact ideology is the grand dogma of our time, I take the claim without hyperbole. A dogma is a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. It is something that is unquestionably believed despite insufficient supporting evidence. And if Sowell is saying this is the biggest dogma of our age, well, then it must be having massive effects on society which are worth exploring. I suspect that Heather MacDonald agrees with Sowell that disparate impact is the grand dogma of our time, which would explain why she dedicated her latest book to the subject. In her new book, Heather describes disparate impact ideology in this way. The driving concept behind this revolution is disparate impact. Under this ideology, any standard or behavioral norm which negatively and disproportionately affects blacks is presumed to be a tool of white supremacy. If academic admissions standards for colleges and high schools result in a student body in which the percentage of black students is less than that of the national population, 13%, then those standards must be lowered for the sake of racial equity. If the enforcement of criminal law results in a prison population that is more than 13% black, then that enforcement must be unwound. If hiring and promotion criteria mean that a workplace is not proportionally diverse, then those criteria must be abandoned. Heather's book makes the case that disparate impact ideology is having a massive negative impact on American society. She pulls no punches when she says this. The concept of disparate impact is destroying America's core institutions in the name of fighting invented racism. It is putting future scientific advances at risk by substituting racial quotas for meritocracy. It is unwinding decades of progress in fighting urban crime by declaring colorblind law enforcement racist. The nonstop denunciation of the West's civilizational inheritance may well be contributing to America's drug-addicted malaise and to rising mental distress among the young. This cultural self-cancellation impoverishes the imagination, stunts the capacity for wonder and joy, and strips the future of everything that gives human life meaning, beauty, sublimity, and wit. Before I invite Heather onto the podcast, I'd like to spend some time exploring disparate impact ideology and its implications for society. 
Let me start by teasing out what exactly is disparate impact ideology. Here's how I see it. Once our society had the idea to forbid discrimination based on race, the problem arose as to how exactly we were going to know if and when someone is discriminating against others based on their race. I mean, it's impossible to know what someone is thinking in their mind or feeling in their heart. So how can we tell who is and who isn't discriminating against others because of their race? It becomes a guessing game. And sure, we can point fingers and call people bad names. But how can we prove in a court of law that someone is discriminating based on race? So they invented the concept of disparate impact, primarily as a legal tool to be used in court. And here's how it works. Let's say a certain organization is mostly white, with very few Hispanics or blacks on the team. And let's say this organization requires applicants to pass some sort of a test in order to be invited into the organization. The test could be a mental test. It could be a knowledge test. But it could also be a physical test. It could even be a musical test. You get the idea. Well then, if this test doesn't automatically lead to a racially diverse team, then the test can be said to be having a so-called disparate impact on the racial groups which are not getting a proportionate number of quote-unquote seats at the table. Disparate impact is just a fancy way to say negative effect. The test is having a negative effect on this or that group. The implication is that the organization's admissions test is making it unfairly hard for particular groups to get into the organization. We might not understand why the test is filtering out certain groups. All we have to know is that it is filtering out those groups. So if the end result is not a racial mix, which corresponds to the racial mix of society as a whole, well then, this is a red flag which must be investigated. And this means that either someone or something is discriminating against someone else. So we don't have to prove what's going on in someone's mind or heart in order to be able to demonstrate that discrimination is happening. Disparate impact analysis became over time a powerful legal tool to be used in lawsuits accusing various organizations of discrimination. One key point of Heather McDonald's book, however, is that what started out as a highly technical legal theory to be used only in complex court cases has now become a mainstream way for everyday people in everyday organizations to look at the world and to make racial adjustments accordingly. In preparation for this podcast, I looked up everything Sowell had written about disparate impact ideology. I learned nine things from him. Let me go through them one by one. Number one, the burden of proof. The ideology of disparate impact has effectively shifted the burden of proof in legal cases from the plaintiff to the defendant. Traditionally, the plaintiff in a case has to prove that the defendant did something wrong. But in disparate impact cases, the defendant is expected to prove that they did everything right. In his 2018 book, Discrimination and Disparities, Sowell said this, 
If a given prerequisite for employment or promotion, a high school diploma, for example, has a disparate impact on some group, such as ethnic minorities, then the burden of proof falls on the accused employer to provide a justification of the requirement or else be judged guilty of discrimination. This process represents a major departure from American legal principles in both criminal and civil cases, where the burden of proof is usually on those making an accusation rather than expecting the accused to prove their innocence. There are serious practical consequences of this very different legal standard in civil rights cases. There are costs to both employers and workers seeking employment when the assortment and proportions of employees differ from the assortment and proportions of groups in the surrounding area. Number 2. The Glass Ceiling The technique of shifting the burden of proof onto others is manifested in the concept of the so-called glass ceiling. I remember hearing about the glass ceiling decades ago, and I always found it a little strange. Wait, you mean there's this ceiling that is above our heads, which keeps only women from becoming CEOs? I don't see any ceiling. Where is it exactly? Well, everyone knows that you can't actually see the ceiling with your eyes because it's made of glass and it's therefore invisible. And men can pass through the glass like the flesh could walk through walls. But women don't have this superpower. Hmm, I always found this theory kind of suspect, even before I started reading Sowell. In Intellectuals and Society, Sowell said this, Another of the ways of evading opposing views has been simply putting the burden of proof on others. What does the phrase glass ceiling mean, except that no visible evidence is necessary to support the conclusion that a dearth of women above some occupational level is due to discrimination rather than to innumerable other factors that are involved? What does disparate impact mean, except that it is presumptively the particular criteria used to judge and select people, which creates a false appearance of differences in capabilities among people? when there is no real or relevant difference between the people themselves. Similarly, the benefits of diversity need only be asserted, reiterated, and insisted upon, but never demonstrated or even illustrated empirically, much less proved. Merely saying words like diversity, glass ceiling, or disparate impact banishes any need for evidence to supplement the peer consensus, which produces automatic responses not unlike those of Pavlov's dog. Number 3. Different Groups have different abilities. One of the biggest lessons that I learned from Sowell is that different groups have different abilities and different motivations. We're not all the same from birth with equal potential. This is part and parcel of what Sowell calls the tragic vision. Life isn't equal. Life just isn't fair in the cosmic sense. So many things make us different, genetics, birth order, culture, history, and even geography. I could devote multiple podcasts to just this subject. That's how big it is. In his 1987 collection of essays called Ever Wonder Why, Sowell said this, Since it is virtually impossible to find two groups with the same qualification in any industry or in any country, Applying the same standards to all applicants for employment or promotion virtually guarantees a disparate impact on different groups, which in turn virtually guarantees charges of discrimination. Even when the same employer hires people for different jobs, say, 
third baseman, and center fielders. There can be very different racial representation in those two jobs. Check out the races of third basemen and center fielders in the major leagues. Is the employer a racist when he hires third basemen, but not a racist when he hires center fielders? You may have seen hundreds of black football players score touchdowns, but when did you last see a black player kick the point after? Do you believe that white club owners are willing to hire black running backs and wide receivers and to pay them millions of dollars each, but that those very same club owners cannot abide the thought of a black man kicking a football through the uprights? These are just some of the absurd conclusions you would have to reach if you took disparate impact statistics seriously. But disparate impact theory is like the emperor who has no clothes. Everybody knows he has no clothes, but they have to pretend that he does. Otherwise, the whole system is in jeopardy. Now, I'm not a sports guy, so I can't verify from personal experience if Sowell is right about the racial composition of third basemen versus center fielders in baseball or between running backs and field goal kickers in football. So let me turn to Google Images to see what I can dig up. Okay, let me type in images.google.com. Now let me type in NFL running backs. Okay, so I'm looking at photos of hundreds of running backs. Since this is an audio-only podcast, let me share with you what I'm seeing. To help me describe this, I'd like to employ a famous piece composed by Jacques Offenbach, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's called The Can-Can. Black, 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 white, black, 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 white, black, 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 white, 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 black, 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 black. Black, 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 black. Okay, now let me Google NFL field goal kickers. Here we go. This is what I see. White, 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 white. White, 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 white. White, 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 white. White, 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 white. Oh my God, they're all white. I don't see a single black guy on the list. How could that be? Hmm, so it seems like Sowell wasn't exaggerating when he gave these sports examples. I'll leave it to listeners of this podcast to run the same test with baseball third basemen and center fielders. Just remember to play the can-can in the background while you are checking. Number four. Probability, Statistics, and the Human Brain. Ever since I was a teenager, I have been fascinated by the study of probability and statistics. You know, if you roll a pair of dice, what is the probability that you will roll a double, like double fives or double sixes? What's great about studying probability is that you eventually come to the realization that the human brain is poorly equipped to understand this subject. We all share an extremely flawed perception of the chances that things will happen the way they happen. In Discrimination and Disparities, Sowell introduces the concept of probability, and he even uses actual mathematics to illustrate the point. I'm excited to share this clip with you because it conveys a truly deep insight 
about how things work in the real world. Once you hear this insight, you will never be able to forget it. Sowell says this, When there is some endeavor with five prerequisites for success, then by definition, the chances of success in that endeavor depend on the chances of having all five of those prerequisites simultaneously. Even if none of these prerequisites is rare, for example, if these prerequisites are all so common that chances are two out of three that any given person has any one of those five prerequisites, nevertheless, the odds are against having all five of the prerequisites for success in that endeavor. When the chances of having any one of the five prerequisites are two out of three, as in this example, the chance of having all five is two-thirds multiplied by itself five times. That comes out to be 32 out of 243 in this example, or about 1 out of 8. In other words, the chances of failure are about 7 out of 8. This is obviously a very skewed distribution of success, and nothing like a normal bell curve of distribution of outcomes that we might expect otherwise. What does this little exercise in arithmetic mean in the real world? One conclusion is that we should not expect success to be evenly or randomly distributed among individuals, groups, institutions, or nations in endeavors with multiple prerequisites, which is to say, most meaningful endeavors. And if these are indeed prerequisites, then having four out of five prerequisites means nothing as far as successful outcomes are concerned. Let's stop for a minute to ponder what Sowell is saying here. He gives the example of an endeavor which has five prerequisites for success. And he talks about what is the probability that a given individual will possess all five of those prerequisites at the same time. Using basic probability calculations, he comes to the conclusion that in his hypothetical example, the probability is only one out of eight, or 12.5%, that someone will have all five prerequisites. In other words, the vast majority of people will not have all five of the required prerequisites. And even people who have four out of the five prerequisites might be utter failures when it comes to this endeavor. The example that comes to my mind when I hear Sowell explain this is airline pilots. I have always had a deep respect for airline pilots. Why? Because I myself tried to become a pilot. Not an airline pilot, but just a private pilot flying single-engine propeller planes. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I joined the Caltech Flying Club, and I started taking flying lessons out of El Monte Airport. I got 40 hours of training under my belt, and I even soloed once, which means I got to fly the airplane all alone without my instructor for about 20 minutes and do a few takeoffs and landings by myself. It was a great experience, but I decided not to pursue my license. Why did I quit? Well, because I realized that there were several prerequisites to being a good pilot, but that there was one which I did not possess, and that this one prerequisite was possibly the difference between life and death. Sure, I was smart enough to pass the written exam, which isn't so easy, by the way, and I had the basic skills to juggle multiple variables at once while flying, communicating with the control tower, scanning the horizon for other planes, and all the other things you have to monitor to fly safely. The one quality I did not possess was emotional in nature. I can be stubborn. I tend to plow forward with a plan, even in the face of contradictory facts. Remember when JFK Jr. 
got in his plane and flew to Martha's Vineyard to attend a wedding, even though the weather was too foggy. And he crashed into the ocean with his wife and sister-in-law, never to be seen again. Well, that's me. If I need to be somewhere or do something, but a rational analysis would lead a good pilot to abandon the flight, well, I would probably fly anyway. One of the things I loved about the movie Sully with Tom Hanks was how the airline pilot was able to control his emotions in the face of so much chaos happening so quickly and to make the hard decision to land in the Hudson River with no emotion and with pure logic. How many of us could have done the same? I'm guessing not many. Here's the crash landing scene from the movie Sully. While you're listening to this clip, imagine if you had been the pilot of this plane and you had just lost both your engines to a bird strike. Would you have landed in the river or would you have followed the instructions of the air traffic controller who was telling you over and over again to turn right to runway one at Teterboro Airport, all the while being harangued by the automated cockpit voice telling you to pull up, pull up, pull up. I probably would have turned right. Let's hear what Sully did. I don't think we can make any runway. Uh, What about over to our right? Anything in New Jersey, maybe Teterboro? Okay, yeah, off your right side is Teterboro Airport. LaGuardia departure, got emergency inbound. This is Teterboro South, go ahead. Uh, Cactus 1549 of the GW Bridge. Needs to go to the airport right now. Cactus, do you need assistance? Yes, bird strike. Can I get him in for runway one? No relight after 30 seconds in your master one and two. Confirm off. Off. Wait 30 seconds. Too low. Terrain. Too low. Terrain. Too low. Terrain. Too low. Terrain. This is the captain. Brace for impact. 500. Runway 1, Teterboro. We can't make it. Okay, which runway would you like at Teterboro? Go ahead, try number one. Number one. No relay. We're going to end up in the Hudson. Too low, terrain. I'm sorry, say again, Cactus? Too low, terrain. Too low, terrain. Even as they're getting closer and closer to the water below, both the pilot and co-pilot are calmly trying to restart the engines. Flaps out. Put the flaps out. Flaps out. Cactus 1549, radar contact lost. Uh, you also got Newark off you at 2 o'clock at about 7 miles. Oh. Got flaps out. 250 feet in the air. Oh. 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 170 knots. Got no power on you to one. Try the other one. Try the other one. 149. Still out? 150 knots. Got flaps to you. One more? No, let's do it. Too. You got runway 29 available at Newark. It'll be 2 o'clock at 7 miles. You got any ideas? Actually, not. 
My favorite part is that moment where Sully calmly turns to his co-pilot and asks him, got any ideas? And his co-pilot answers, actually not. And they just braced for the inevitable. The five out of five principle applies to airline pilots, but it also applies to firefighters, cops, heavy equipment operators, heart surgeons, and a host of other professions which tow the line between life and death on a near daily basis. I don't know about you, but I prefer when those guys have all five of the prerequisites for their profession and not just four out of five. And I'm hoping that whatever tests they are giving those guys to assess who should get in and who should be kept out, I'm hoping that those tests have a disparate impact on whoever doesn't have all five prerequisites. In Discrimination and Disparities, Sowell talks about how our flawed perception of probabilities can be the driving force behind many ideological movements. He says this, Patterns of very skewed distributions of success have long been common in the real world, and such skewed outcomes contradict some fundamental assumptions on both the political left and right. People on opposite sides of many issues may both assume a background level of probabilities that is not realistic. Yet that flawed perception of probabilities and the failure of the real world to match expectations derived from that flawed perception can drive ideological movements, political crusades, and judicial decisions, up to and including decisions by the Supreme Court of the United States, where disparate impact statistics showing different outcomes for different groups have been enough to create a presumption of discrimination. Numbers may also be misleading, not because of any intrinsic defects in either the numbers themselves or in the words describing them, but because of implicit assumptions about the norms to which those numbers are being compared. Here, the seemingly invincible fallacy of assuming an even or random distribution of outcomes as something to expect, in the absence of such complicating causes as genes or discrimination, can make many statistics that show very disparate outcomes be seen as indicating something fundamentally wrong in the real world rather than something fundamentally wrong with the assumptions behind the norms to which those outcomes are being compared. Neither logic nor empirical evidence provides a compelling reason for expecting either equal or random outcomes among individuals, groups, institutions, or nations. When used with an awareness of their pitfalls, statistics can be enormously valuable in testing competing hypotheses about disparate outcomes. But statistics may nevertheless be grossly misleading when they are distorted by errors of omission or errors of commission. So let's talk about probability theory for a few minutes. I'd like you to join me on a social experiment, which will prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that human beings are the worst probability calculating machines ever created. We're not only not that good at probability and statistics, we are 
positively horrible at it. For this experiment, I visited the campus of Caltech University here in sunny Pasadena, California. Caltech has a gorgeous campus, and if you ever come to LA, I encourage you to come for a visit. In the center of the campus is a pond inhabited by dozens of turtles. I take my kids there often. It's a real treat for them. The pond is surrounded by large boulders, which have been placed there for a very specific reason. Some of these boulders are literally billions of years old. Have you ever touched something that was a billion years old? Well, I have, right here by the pond at Caltech. I'm here to interview the world's brightest students with a classic probability problem. So here's the problem, and here's how they answered it. Hey guys, could I ask you a quick math question for a podcast? Let's do it, bro. Okay. So say you go to a bar, and there are 60 people in the bar at random. What's the probability that there are two people in that bar with the same birthday? Same birthday. I, I, I have never taken a probability Let's class Let's see, every individual, life. you know, it's got to be one birthday out of 365, right? So we have two individuals with both their birthdays on the same one out of 365... One out of 365 squared. Okay, well, that's silly because, um, well, there's also 365 days it could be, so. Sure. Or maybe I'm tweaking. Oh, but then 60, I didn't even put 60 into it. Wait, what do you mean 60? Does 60 matter, 60 people in the bar? Right. (laughs) Well, instead of trying to figure out the exact number, what's your intuition? Approximately, you know, flipping a coin is 50-50, right? So what, just using intuition, what's the probability that there'll be two people there with the same birthday? 1 over 365 times 1 over 365. What the hell? Right? <laughs> what about the 60 people? I don't know. That's my intro. You flip a coin. Okay, sure. You know, your you intuition. Two people um, with the same birthday. Uh, I say 1 sixth. Okay. That's, that's a fair answer. What about you? I, I, I just said 1 over 365. He said 1 in 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Could I ask you a math question for a podcast while you're walking? Uh, sure. <laughs> okay. So imagine you go to a bar and there are 60 people at the bar. What's the probability that there'll be two people there with the same birthday? Oh, yeah, that's the birthday problem. It's pretty high. It's like uh, 50-something, right, or higher than that. It's well, what's pretty your, high. What's your intuition? Uh, so you've heard the problem before. Yeah, but what's, what's in your intuition on the uh, number? It's pretty high because you have so many, like, pairs of people that it's pretty likely to get someone. So give me a number. I'm going to say 60. It's like 30-something percent, right? It's kind of high. Or 64. I don't know. I, it's, it's in a, I did it in a class once. I already forgot how to do it. <laughs> what, what's, your, what's your guess? I have an idea. Don't ask. Use your intuition. Just, you know, shooting from the hip. Okay. I'm going to say 50%. I think it's pretty high. Yeah, I would say like 70. What was the total number of people? 60 people. I would guess around like 25-ish. 25%. Same birthday. It's going to be... There should be five out of the 60 if it's well if it's uniformly distributed um it should be five so what's the probability in percent in person <laughs> approximately percent. you don't have to give me the exact number just you know shooting from the hip using your intuition right around eight percent so you think only eight percent probability if it was i guess it's not truly uniformly distributed if it's based on the holidays i think more people are <laughs> born nine months after them um I, okay, I'll bias it up. Uh, wait, so repeat the question. So if there are 60 people in a bar, right. 
Ran- at random, uh-huh. what's the probability that there are two people there with the same birthday? Okay. Uniformly distributed is 8%, so I'll bias it. I'll say 16%. Okay. It's not super likely, but it's not extremely likely. It's not middle likely. It's less likely. So you think around 25% or too maybe, high? Maybe too high, maybe less. So 15 maybe? 15, maybe sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So 60 people at the bar, what's the probability of two people at the bar with the same birthday? I guess it should be one of uh, uh, 365 days per year. That's like the chance you have in one day, and then I would take that square. So I guess it's unlikely. It's uh, one of a 365 square. Is that a correct? Uh, so like one out of 10,000, that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, something like that. Okay. I remember this one. Um, the idea is you compute the anti-probability, the probability that there are, that nobody at the party has the same birthday or something like that, and then subtract it from one or something like that. And it ends up that, like, I think 35 people is the 50% mark, so over 50%. That's uh, don't you have to, like, condition on the probability there. that, well, I mean, the prior, that they're all greater than 21? Are you using Bayesian statistics right now? I mean, you always use Bayesian statistics. <laughs> oh, that's actually a good point, though, because the bar is going to select for people who are over... Well, I, wait, 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 no, it's, yeah. no, 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 that, that only... That's not going to affect it, because the, the birthday doesn't matter. You don't know time of year based on their age. Birthday? Well, yeah, because oh, it's the probability... Birthday. I heard date. Yeah. Well, oh, birthday. Yeah, the same day. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have day. to be the same year. Just the same, same day. day. Like March oh, 15th. Same, you're right. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So it's... I, I couldn't replicate the math right now, though, I don't think. It's a little tricky to do it on the fly. But yeah. what's your intuition on the probability? What percent? I think it's going to be on the order of 70. What about you? Just using your, you know, shooting from the person. Yeah, 60%? 60%. I'll, my gut's telling me very low. <laughs> like, like what? Give me a percentage. Maybe um, less than one percent. Okay. What What do you think? Third of one one third of a percent. One third of a percent. One in ten thousand. So, so very small. So you're yeah. you're guessing less than one percent, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Birthday. To I believe it's twenty seven percent. It's twenty seven percent. Either either that or it was like seventy two percent. I I don't know. But those, that's what I'm going with. Which, which one? Twenty seven. Okay. What about you? I'll say twenty seven as well. Uh pretty high actually. Because of the birthday paradox, I think once the number of people exceeds some like very low threshold, the probability goes up to like 97%. So I would say it's almost actually, I would bet money that there's two people with the same birthday there. Yeah. And you would be right because the probability is 99.9% yeah, yeah. with 60 people. So you've heard this before? Yeah, actually, it was uh, like a homework problem. Okay, what's your major here? Uh, Applied math. Applied math, okay, very good. As you can see, different people gave a wide range of answers to this question, which ranged from 1 in 10,000 to almost 100%. The correct answer is 99.9%. Yes, the probability that with a group of 60 random people there will be at least two people with the same birthday is 99.9%. It's virtually certain. I'm not going to take the time here to explain to you why this is the correct answer, but trust me for now when I tell you that this answer is right. I'll put links in the show notes to some YouTube videos which explain how the solution is calculated. But for our purposes here, the thing to notice is that almost everyone gets this problem wrong. And not just a little bit wrong, but totally and completely way out of the ballpark wrong. 
The few people who got it right, or close, have all heard the problem before and simply remembered the correct answer. Almost no one feels in their gut that it's practically certain there will be a birthday match. Now, if this example doesn't prove to you that the human brain is a horrible statistical machine, then nothing will. So now that I've demonstrated that human beings are lousy at understanding probability and statistics, allow me to posit what I call the Floydian probability fallacy. Basically, my theory is this. The only reason George Floyd became a household name all over the world, pretty much, is that we humans just don't understand statistics and probability. When people saw the video of George Floyd suffocating and then dying under the knee of a police officer, that video image was powerful enough to block out all other logical and rational considerations of statistics and probability. So the fact that more unarmed white men get killed each year by police than black men, that doesn't matter. The fact that there was a white man Tony Timpa, who died under the knee of a police officer in exactly the same way that George Floyd died, that doesn't matter either. The fact that Roland Fryer from Harvard University, who studied police violence and race for years and came to the statistical conclusion that blacks were less likely than whites to be shot by police, that doesn't matter either. People just don't understand the numbers. You know when they point a finger at you and say, do the work? Well, I point right back at them and say, do the math. I've always wondered if innumeracy is a far bigger problem in America than illiteracy. Why? Because innumeracy can lead to rioting in the streets. Number five. Disparate impact ideology is not just bad for companies. It's also bad for their employees. In discrimination and disparities, Sowell said this. The implications of the use of a disparate impact basis for costly lawsuits in civil rights cases does not end with employers. Workers can also be adversely affected, and not just with reduced employment opportunities for black workers who have no criminal record. When a federal agency can so easily make charges of discrimination on behalf of workers from racial or ethnic minorities, charges that can be costly and time-consuming to defend against in the courts, or charges that can force costly settlements out of court, that reduces the value of hiring black or other minority workers, even when their job qualifications are equal to the job qualifications of other workers who present no such legal risk. Employers, therefore, have incentives to locate their businesses away from concentrations of minority populations, so that they will not be as legally vulnerable to costly charges of discrimination if their workforce does not end up with the same demographic makeup as that of the surrounding population. Japanese firms seeking to find locations for their first businesses in the United States have specified that they do not want to locate near concentrations of blacks in the local population. American firms that do the same thing, being more familiar with both the legal and the social atmosphere in the United States, may be less likely to leave a paper trail. Nevertheless, this raises the question whether anti-discrimination laws, as applied in the courts, provide incentives to discriminate against racial minorities as well as incentives not to discriminate, with their net effect being uncertain. One of the things I love about Sowell is his ability to point out that even the most well-meaning policies invariably lead to unintended negative consequences for the very people they are designed to help. 
Disparate impact ideology is apparently no exception. Number six, the invincible fallacy. Sowell is the master at pointing out that there are many fallacies which dominate our thinking about social policies. Fallacies about crime, about economics, about wealth and poverty, and fallacies about social justice. His new book, coming out later this year, will be called Social Justice Fallacies. And judging from the title, it's going to be a bombshell of a book. In my research for this episode, I discovered that Sowell calls disparate impact ideology the invincible fallacy. In Discrimination and Disparities, Sowell says this. At the heart of the prevailing social vision of our times is the seemingly invincible fallacy that group outcomes in human endeavors would tend to be equal, or at least comparable or random, if there were no biased interventions, on the one hand, nor genetic deficiencies, on the other. The essence of the invincible fallacy was perhaps best expressed by Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 18th century, when he wrote of the equality which nature established among men and the inequality which they have instituted among themselves. Yet Rousseau, like many later believers in this seemingly invincible fallacy, took it as axiomatic that only human biases create inequalities. Geography, demography, cultural differences and differences in the quantity and quality of parenting all vanish from this vision, in favor of one causal factor, for which many have imagined that they had a solution. As a homeschooling dad of four little girls, I can assure you that Sowell's line, differences in the quantity and quality of parenting, all vanish from this vision, gives me a particular chuckle. Number seven. Disparate impact ideology adds a further handicap to people who are already handicapped. In other words, disparate impact ideology only makes things worse. In his 2010 collection of essays called Dismantling America, Sowell says this. Tests and other criteria which convey the realities of their existing capabilities compared to that of others can have what is called a disparate impact and are condemned not only in editorial offices but also in courts of law. But criteria exist precisely to have a disparate impact on those who do not have what these criteria exist to measure. Track meets discriminate against those who are slow afoot. Tests in school discriminate against students who did not study. Disregarding criteria in the interest of fairness, in the sense of outcomes independent of inputs, adds to the handicaps of those who already have other handicaps by lying to them about the reasons for their situation and the things they need to do to make their situation better. Number eight, disparate impact ideology is a disguised form of racial quotas. The courts have repeatedly opposed the use of quotas to create racial diversity in America. But human beings, being wily and clever creatures, will always find a way to do what they want, no matter what the rules of the game may be. Is disparate impact ideology just a clever loophole to get around racial quota prohibitions? In his 1993 collection of essays called Is Reality Optional? I love that title. Sowell answers the question this way. Given the high cost of lawyers, 
all this back and forth between courts for all these years cannot be cheap. Obviously, many employers will find it cheaper to hire by quotas if disparate impact statistics are made decisive again in the name of civil rights. They won't call it a quota, of course. There are all sorts of euphemisms already available. Number nine. Disparate impact ideology is not about protecting a minority from the majority. Usually, we think that the majority group suppresses minority groups by creating standards which hold the supposedly powerless minorities back. In Dismantling America, Sowell quickly disavows us of this myth when he says this. Many groups whose performances have greatly outstripped the performances of others in a particular field have often been in no position to discriminate, even when the disparities have been far greater than those between blacks and whites in the United States. In a number of countries, powerless minorities have so outperformed the dominant majority that group preferences and quotas have been instituted to favor the majority group that has otherwise been unable to compete. This has happened in Malaysia, Sri Lanka, Nigeria, and Fiji, among other places. Before World War II, quotas to benefit the majority were common in a number of European universities, where Jewish students outperformed others. This is one of those paradigm-shifting observations that Sowell is famous for. Once you hear it, you can never forget it. Number 9. Show Me the Money Sowell is only half-joking when he makes the claim that disparate impact ideology is an employment scheme for government flunkies and ambulance-chasing lawyers. In Ever Wonder Why, Sowell says this. Take away disparate impact theory, and you would have widespread unemployment in government agencies that enforce anti-discrimination laws. Trial lawyers might have so much time on their hands that they would have to sue more doctors in order to make ends meet. As usual... A lot can be explained simply by following the money trail. Who can forget this scene from the 1996 classic film, Jerry Maguire? Yeah, what what, what can I do for you, Rod? You just tell me what can I do for you? It's a very personal, very important thing. Hell, it's a family model. Are you ready, Jerry? I'm ready. Want to make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is. Show me the money. In doing research for this episode, I learned a lot about disparate impact ideology from Sowell. But I have to admit, reading Heather McDonald's new book took my understanding of the phenomenon to a whole new level. 
Here are 11 key things I learned from McDonald's book, When Race Trumps Merit, with each point illustrated with a quote from the book. Point one, double standards. Double standards are more prevalent than I had ever imagined. Heather McDonald wrote this. We pretend that the reason for the lack of proportional representation in institution after institution is racist measures of achievement rather than vast academic and behavioral gaps. As a remedy for this alleged racism, we create double standards of accomplishment and behavior. But double standards help no one. They are condescending and they are lethal. Number two, whiteness. The concept of whiteness was created to divert attention away from vast performance gaps between racial groups. Heather McDonald said this. The most devastating charge that can be leveled against a tradition today is that its practitioners have historically been white. Classical music, European art, and science are on the defensive for their demographic past, as well as for inadequate diversity in the present. Number three, identity politics. According to McDonald, identity politics is causing a dramatic decline of the arts. She said this. The biggest victim in the racial attack on classical music is the music itself. Once the poison of identity politics is injected into a field, it can never recover its prelapsarian innocence. Every time an industry insider or critic disparages our greatest composers for being too white and too male, he gives neophytes, especially young people, another reason to close their ears to this legacy. Number four, racial disparities in criminal offending. According to McDonald, there are dramatic racial disparities in criminal offending, and hiding this fact gets in the way of solving the problem. Heather McDonald wrote this. When I speak on policing, I have been told repeatedly by white listeners that hearing the data on disproportionate black crime makes them uncomfortable. This feeling is not the response of a white supremacist. It is the response of someone who is in the dark about racial disparities in criminal offending or who wishes that those disparities would go away in the service of racial harmony and equality. Number five, unwinding of objective standards. The unwinding of objective standards leads to the unwinding of accomplishment itself. McDonald said this. The next step in the unwinding of objective standards is to reject the notion of accomplishment itself. It has become career-ending to hold that some individuals or cultures achieve more than others. The ever more sweeping deprecation of Western civilization refuses to acknowledge the West's unparalleled contributions to human progress. And now the behavioral norms that lead to individual success are being relativized as well. Number seven, standardized tests. Standardized tests are being abandoned because of a desire to hide the vast achievement gaps between groups. McDonald said this. As long as data on the skills and behavior gaps remain available, it is possible to challenge the myth of bias at least in theory. So those facts must themselves be canceled, as well as anyone who publicizes them. That is the ultimate motivation for the movement to end the use of standardized tests in admissions. Number eight, 
inner city culture. According to McDonald, a dysfunctional inner city culture is hampering black advancement. She says this. Racial etiquette does not demand a denial of reality. It demands that every individual be treated fairly, with courtesy and respect. But the reality remains that a dysfunctional inner-city culture is hindering black progress. That culture belittles academic achievement as acting white. It is indifferent to life, as the dozens of drive-by shootings that occur daily in American cities attest to. It is cruel, as shown by the regular beatings and stomping of elderly Americans, many of them Asian. It is entitled, As the Lootings That Have Become a Plague on Retail Business Reveal. Number 9. The Profession of Medicine According to McDonald, the profession of medicine has been dramatically impacted by disparate impact thinking. The post-George Floyd racial reckoning hit the field of medicine like an earthquake. Medical education, medical research, and standards of competence have been upended by two related hypotheses. That racial disparities in the demographics of the medical profession and racial disparities in health outcomes are the products of systemic racism. Number 10. Classical Music According to MacDonald, classical music is under attack because it represents the achievements of Western culture. The attack against classical music is worth examining in some detail, for it reveals the logic that has been turned against nearly every aspect of Western culture over the last few years. That logic displays a hatred of beauty, a brittle intolerance of the past, and a self-righteous certainty that the orthodoxies of the present are uniquely just. Number 11. Law Enforcement And finally, and perhaps most importantly, disparate impact ideology has completely upended and undermined traditional practices of law enforcement across the country. McDonald says this. Disparate impact analysis has had its most concrete effect on the criminal justice system, where every disparity in arrest or incarceration rates is now attributed to racism. Prosecutors, legislators, and police chiefs are rolling back criminal penalties and enforcement to eliminate such disparities. The lessons of two decades of successful crime fighting have been forgotten, with predictable results, spreading violence and predation. And now it's time to finally bring Heather McDonald onto the podcast. But before I do, I want to remind listeners that if you are getting value out of this podcast and want to support the work I am doing in spreading the ideas of Thomas Sowell far and wide, please consider making a monthly contribution at patreon.com backslash Sowell Genius. All of the money I raise through Patreon gets spent on promoting Sowell and his ideas through podcasting, tweeting, advertising, and promotion. I started this podcast because I felt that the best way for me to improve the world was simply to share Sowell's ideas. If you agree with that basic premise, then you should either also be sharing Sowell's ideas with others or support me in sharing Sowell's ideas with others. Am I making any sense right now? Once again, that's patreon.com backslash Sowell Genius. As Cuba Gooding Jr. so eloquently said, show me the money. Show me the money. It's now time to invite Heather McDonald onto the podcast. Heather is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research based in New York City. 
Much like what Sowell does, Heather does research into domestic policy and urban affairs and tries to figure out what's working and what's not. She then writes articles and books sharing what she has learned. Her first book was published in 2000 and was called The Burden of Bad Ideas, How Modern Intellectuals Misshape Our Society. I haven't read it yet, but her title reminds me of my favorite Sowell book, Intellectuals and Society. Three years later, she wrote a book called Are Cops Racist? This was followed with another book about policing in 2016 called The War on Cops, How the New Attack on Law and Order Makes Everyone Less Safe. I first discovered Heather McDonald in 2018 with the publication of her book, The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. I loved that book, and I remember finishing it, then immediately starting it over and reading it a second time. Great book. Her latest book, which just came out this month, is called When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. There are three things I want to acknowledge Heather McDonald for. Number one, she does her research. Reminds me a lot of Sowell. They both do the work and dig up the facts. Remember Detective Joe Friday? Just the facts, ma'am. Number two, she's a clear thinker and a powerful communicator. I always know where she stands on the issues. There's no ambiguity in her writing. And number three, she tells it like it is. She doesn't mince words or beat around the bush. I really appreciate that about her. This quality reminds me of Sowell as well. It's refreshing to be in the presence of someone who just tells the truth. And the truth is the most important thing, both to McDonald and to Sowell. How other people are going to react to the truth or feel about the truth is not their primary concern. I can't tell if they have an extra gene for truth-telling or they lack the gene for worrying about other people's feelings, or maybe both. Whatever the case, I think I possess the same genetic defect, and I'll leave it to my listeners to decide if it's a feature or a bug of my personality. My interview with Heather lasted a little over an hour, and I got to ask her 10 questions about her ideas and about her new book, When Race Trumps Merit. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I plan to garnish the podcast with some classics of classical music and opera. So here's what I'm thinking. In between each question, I will insert a short clip from a famous classical piece and one or two gems about the piece or the composer. I hope you enjoy these short musical interludes as much as I do. Without further ado, Heather McDonald, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Alan. I appreciate it. In preparing for this interview, I was looking at the cover of your 2016 book, The War on Cops. And there in the top right corner of the book is a pithy eight-word quote from another author who simply said this, quote, this is a book that can save lives, end quote. That blurb was written by none other than Thomas Sowell. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Sowell and about how his ideas have overlapped with your body of work. Well, I would never claim to overlap with the great Thomas Sowell. I've had the pleasure once of having a dinner with him and his wife uh, 
and a mutual acquaintance of ours from Los Angeles, a prosecutor at a San Francisco hotel. I got to see his extraordinary photographs. And he has been an inspiration to me. Occasionally over the years, we've we've exchanged some emails, but I aspire to his clarity of writing, his lack of jargon, his and his constant appreciation for facts and data. Let's let's segue into the thesis of your new book, which is called When Race Trumps Merit. The key idea of your book is a concept called disparate impact. Thomas Sowell has called disparate disparate impact ideology the grand dogma of our time. Firstly, what exactly is disparate impact? And secondly, do you agree with Sowell that it's the grand dogma of our age? Yes, and he was certainly present in in identifying it. Uh, He speaks about it at the beginning of discrimination and disparities in 2018. I started using the concept to understand what was going on in our world most intensely after the George Floyd race riots. Uh, but it basically holds that any racial disparity in any institution is by definition the product of racism. And it it arrives at that really rather sweeping and profoundly dangerous idea by holding that if a neutral colorblind standard of either achievement or behavior has what's called a disparate impact on various protected victim groups, but it's predominantly applied in the case of Blacks, so I'm going to just confine my discussion there. If that neutral colorblind standard has a disparate impact on Blacks, that standard is virtually per se illegitimate. And right now, the fact is that the only allowable explanation for racial disparities in institutions is racism. And with that dominant ideology, we are tearing down meritocratic standards. We're tearing down behavioral standards in the criminal law, and we are tearing down as a consequence the very possibility of civilization. You are listening to Für Elise by Ludwig von Beethoven. This famous piece was not published during Beethoven's lifetime and was only discovered 40 years after his death. The thing I never understand about the whole disparate impact way of looking at things is that there are some very obvious examples of how this type of thinking can lead one to absurd conclusions. For example, men are only 50% of the population, and yet they are over 90% of the prison population. According to disparate impact ideology, shouldn't one conclude that the criminal justice system has a disparate impact on men and therefore needs to be completely overhauled? How do proponents of disparate impact thinking reconcile themselves with these obvious absurdities? I don't think there's much concern for consistency. 
they would probably just be willing to say that, well, in this case, uh, we acknowledge that men have higher rates of criminality than women. And so we would expect that. But in the case of other standards that do produce disparate impact, such as the fact that the application of the criminal law not only has a disparate impact on men, but it has a disparate impact on blacks, they are not going to acknowledge that there is, in fact, a astronomically higher rate of criminal offending among blacks than among whites. So there's always a way to say, well, we're going to distinguish this situation from that situation. That having been said, I've I've not observed the racially obsessed left give it an answer to your question, Alan, but that's my guess as to how it would, would answer. This piece was composed in the year 1680 by Johann Pachelbel. It's hard to fathom that a composition so simple can be so powerful and emotional. Some people speculate that Pachabel composed the piece for Bach's wedding, but we will never know for sure. Now, when Sowell started writing about disparate impact ideology 30 or 40 years ago, it was mostly in reference to aberrant cases winding their way through the legal system. My understanding is that that this ideology was concocted by lawyers in order to craft clever arguments to win cases. And to some extent, it worked out for them. But at some point, this way of thinking crawled out of the arcane world of legal briefs and made its way into everyday life. How did that happen? Well, it began as a way to expand the reach of the civil rights laws that were passed after the great era of civil rights protest and agitation that began in the, in the 1950s and through the 19 mid 1960s, bringing us a little bit closer to what purported to be our founding ideals after centuries of mistreatment, horrific cruelty towards blacks. But the civil rights laws of 1965, 1966, banned intentional discrimination. They said an employer cannot not hire a qualified Black person on the basis of race. But in order to bring a a case that you've been the victim of discrimination, the plaintiff who had been denied a job or denied a a promotion would have to show that the employer actually intended to discriminate against him. Well, it was thought that this wasn't doing enough to result in equal outcomes. And so the court expanded 
the concept of discrimination in the civil rights statutes to no longer require intent to discriminate. An employer could be completely unbiased, completely colorblind, uh, meritocratic, but if that employer had was using a criterion of employment that had a disparate impact on Blacks, such as, for instance, a certain level of literacy, and expecting a certain level of literacy for, say, a firefighter or a policeman so that they could read a, a manual of chemicals that, that can and cannot be used in a fighting fires or, or what the legal rules are for making a stop. If, if that expectation of literacy had a disparate impact on Blacks and the employer could not make the argument that it was required by business necessity, which is a very hard argument to make, you'd throw out the standard. And that idea of disparate impact was used again and again to tear down uh, minimal admissions, uh, rather employment criteria in factory jobs, in policing, in firefighting, in teaching. And it worked its way into several statutes and into federal regulations in a rather haphazard way, but it was essential in the pernicious campaign that President Barack Obama accelerated during his years against school discipline policies. Uh, and the Obama Department of Justice and Department of Education said that if a school's discipline policies have a disparate impact on Black students, if Black students are given suspensions or even expulsions at a higher rate than whites, even if the standards they use are colorblind in disciplining students, we are going to prevent the schools from applying discipline because it, discipline has a disparate impact on Black students. Here's the key in any kind of disparate impact analysis, Alan, what you are never, ever, ever allowed to ask is, well, is there underlying differences on average among different groups that says nothing about any individual's capacities or predilections, but you are never allowed to say, are there group differences on av in average of academic skills or of behavior that would result in a disparate outcome? And so we when when obama was going suing school district after school district for disciplining black students at higher rates and so the schools would stop imposing discipline the classrooms would become even more chaotic teachers were being assaulted at an even higher rate the students who came to school in order to learn were being prevented even more catastrophically from learning because the disruptors were left in class, insubordinate towards their teachers, beating up on other kids, but they were left there because they were black and they were therefore protected by the dogma of, of disparate impact. That was like one of the, the most dangerous things that this, this uh, theory 
has promulgated. But it is now, as you say, Alan, it's not a question of bringing a lawsuit or bringing a federal action or the executive branch going after a bank for not having equal outcomes in its in its bank lending practices. It is simply a idea that has permeated the entirety of the culture so that all the New York Times or CNN needs to do about any to any institution if it wants to take that institution down is to show that it is not proportionate in its racial representation and therefore there must be somewhere some racist standard at work that is preventing uh, 13% black representation. This piece is called Humoresque and was composed by Antonin Dvorak in 1894. The version you are hearing is being played by Itzhak Perlman on violin and Yo-Yo Ma on cello, two of the biggest names in contemporary classical music. You know, you reminded me of something that Sowell often harps on. He, he often says that, you know, one disruptive student can pull down an entire class of 30 students to a very, very low level. It's like the lowest common denominator. And I often think that one really great student, very well behaved, very conscientious, he doesn't bring up 30 kids. But one disruptive student can pull down 30 kids. It's very, very lopsided in that respect. You also also mentioned that 13% number, and I've often wondered, it seems to be the magic number right now, but when you're hiring and you're trying to make the racial balance of a certain environment match some theoretical number, what number does one pick? Does one pick the racial balance in the neighborhood? Does one pick the racial balance of the entire city? Does one pick the balance in the country? I mean, why not the world? Like, why... Has that 13% number become some sort of magic number? Even if you could live in a 99% Asian part of town. I live in Los Angeles and there are neighborhoods here that are 99% Asian. And do they still have to follow the 13% rule or how, how does that work? Yeah, I love the global comparison. I've never thought of that before. Uh, you're reaching the very important issue in policing, which is the benchmark. Like, what is the underlying population that we're going to use to compare police activity to? You know, they never actually get to 13% of saying, well, you haven't met 13%, because in most meritocratic institutions, sadly, because the academic skills gap is so large, we're usually talking about, say, you know, at, at Google, maybe 1.5% of the engineers are black. So that's enough to say this is a discriminatory institution. Or when the National Institute of Health, Institutes of Health give out 
research awards to study Alzheimer's or cancer, only about 1.5% of the so-called principal investigators on those awards are Black. And the NIH says about itself, well, that must be because we are systemic racism, racist. It does not say, well, that's because there are no, there are not a, a larger number of competitively qualified Blacks in the pipeline. But, you know, it can be often there's a, like a minute difference that will bring out charges of disparate impact or racism, because in California, the Black population is about five or six percent. And if if an institution is like four percent black, that'll still be viewed as as a proof of racism. So it's uh, it's a it's a varying standard. You, you start with the assumption of racism and then you go look at the numbers and whatever they are. If there's any disparity there, it's it's racist. But the, in the issue of policing, this is the most thorny issue. Not that the left even tries to figure out a remotely decent benchmark, but if one were to do so, for instance, the issue of car stops. You know, in the in the late 1990s and early 2000s, the big anti-police crusade was the driving while black crusade, and the charge that the police were pulling over black drivers arbitrarily based simply on the color of their skin. Nobody ever asked, well, can, at night, do you ever, can you actually see the race of a driver you're pulling over through tinted windows? The answer is no, but that, that question never got asked. But a more fundamental question is, well, what is the percentage of drivers who are breaking the law? And does that explain the fact that blacks may be pulled over at higher rates? And for a while, one could study this and still survive in academia. Now that's no longer possible. People have stopped, any criminologists have stopped doing any kind of driving studies. But what we learned when it was still possible is that blacks do speed at higher rates than whites. There was a study done of the New Jersey Turnpike and the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey as a result of a consent decree that was slapped on the New Jersey State Troopers and found with looking at tens of thousands of pieces of data related to drivers that Blacks sped at at twice the rate of whites and at speeds over 90 miles an hour the disparity was even greater. But that that's not even enough for the benchmark because, yes, you have to know what rates of lawbreaking are, which is also ignored when you talk about police pedestrian stops, but you also need to know who's on the roads at any given time. And that varies a lot between days of the week, times of day, the racial racial proportions change enormously. So this is all this question of what is your what is the thing that you're comparing it to and it is a thorny question and it's one that the left never thinks about This piece is called Caprice Number 24. 
and was created by Italian composer Niccolo Paganini around 1810. It is widely considered to be the most difficult piece ever written for the solo violin. In my opinion, it's like nothing else. One of the things that Sowell often talks about is how the there's between different populations, between different groups, there's a huge age difference that the average age of black Americans is much lower, for example, than the average age of Asian Americans. And that part of the speeding differential could simply be explained by age differences. That could be. And and also when they were looking at New Jersey, if black drivers were more likely on long haul drives and the local population was going from one freeway on-ramp to the next freeway off-ramp, they wouldn't be building up speeds to the same extent. So that is true. It is also true that the driving in the inner city is, is horrific and Blacks are killed at higher rates as pedestrians. If you are a criminologist. I've talked to a criminologist at, in Cincinnati who's worked in the over the Rhine neighborhood there, and he said it's just it's unbelievable what goes on. The National Highway Transportation Safety Administration has long had a program that studies what it calls the nexus between ca- crashes and crime. It turns out that there's an overlap between people who are engaged in criminal activity and those who are involved in in driving accidents, car crashes and fatal car crashes. And so given the fact that Blacks are much more involved in criminal activity, it turns out that there's also more involved in car crashes. And now with the the complete post-George Floyd race riots, nervous breakdown that this country went through, with the massive self-flagellation about phantom racism and the unwinding of law enforcement and, and the crusade against police car stops. Uh, we you know, heard that, oh, it was traffic enforcement that killed Dante Wright. No, it wasn't. It, you know, he was breaking the law, but police have stopped. The, the rate of car stops is way down and the rate of fatal car crashes is way up and blacks are more They've been uh, disproportionately the victim of those crashes. So, you know, you, you're rightly raising the issue of well, what issues do we look at for disparate impact? We never look at the disparate impact of crime on blacks. It's quite curious. Uh, you're not allowed to talk about crime because of fear of talking about black underclass breakdown. But if you make the talk of crime taboo, you're saying that those dozens of blacks who are killed every day in homicide, more than all white and Hispanics combined, uh, we don't care about them. It's a mystery that the Black Lives Matter activists, they had a choice. They could have taken the side of black criminals or they could have taken the side of black victims. And it was not, if you were coming at this 
de novo, you wouldn't necessarily predict that the activists would take the side of the criminals. Why not take the side of the black victims, the children, the dozens and dozens and dozens of black toddlers and and infants who have been gunned down in their homes and in their parents' car and the front yards, backyards. Why not take the side of those children who have been gunned down because we've decided that we're not going to enforce the criminal law because it has a disparate impact on blacks? Everyone recognizes this piece. It's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It's a true masterpiece. Gustavo Dudamel, currently the lead conductor of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, said this of Beethoven. He is not just the reference point of classical music. He is the master of us all. Your book takes a deep dive into how disparate impact ideology has seeped into many corners of our world. You give examples from the medical profession, from classical music, from the opera, from the world of art, and also, as we were discussing, from the field of law enforcement. Let's start with the field of medicine, which I find absolutely fascinating. I come from a family of doctors, so I know quite a bit about the medical profession. My father was an OBGYN. My grandfather was an internist. My mother's brother is a psychiatrist. I myself was pre-med in college, and I only got cured of the desire to become a doctor by working one summer at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. And I just couldn't picture myself hanging around in hospitals for the rest of my life. It was just too depressing. Your section of the book, which talks about medicine, is very powerful because the story has two distinct sides to it. On the one hand, you talk about the representation of racial groups within the medical profession itself. On the other hand, you talk about disparities in health outcomes between racial groups. Help us to understand what's going on in the world of medicine right now. Medicine, the the medical leaders are, are declaring on a practically daily basis, if you read the medical journals, that medicine is racist. This, this extraordinary achievement that has finally liberated human beings from a just daily toll of the most grotesque, debilitating, disfiguring diseases through the application of the scientific method, randomized controlled experiments, things that have nothing to do with race. The medical profession has decided that medicine is racist on two grounds. First, there is not the usual proportional representation, and we'll just use the 13% here as a, as a placeholder, of Blacks on medical school faculties, in teaching hospitals, 
uh, oncology researchers, Alzheimer's researchers. Therefore, student bodies in medical schools are not yet 13% Black. Therefore, the medical profession is now declaring somewhere, somehow we're being racist. The, the medical school admissions test, MCATs must be racist. The licensing exams to practice as a doctor must be racist because we're not producing 13% Black doctors. And so we're on this crusade to lower the standards of medical achievement. And the other argument is because Blacks have worse health outcomes on average, medicine must be racist. It must be giving them inferior care. And you're not allowed to speak in the first instance about, the again, the academic achievement gap. And let me just put that out there with a few numbers to give this, your listeners a sense of what I'm talking about here. 66% of Black 12th graders do not possess even partial mastery of basic 12th grade math skills, defined as being able to do arithmetical calculations or recognize a linear function on a graph. So 66% of Black 12th graders don't even have partial mastery of those 12th grade math skills. The number of Black 12th graders who are advanced in math and this is looking at a nationwide sample of the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the NAEP exams, the number nationally of, of Black 12th graders who are advanced in math is too small to even show up statistically. Uh, if you look at the ACT, only about 6% of 12th graders, Black 12th graders, are fully college ready when you look at science, math, and reading. The number of whites who are fully college ready on all, all of those counts is five, at least five times higher. So that's the academic skills gap that makes it absurd to expect that in a cutting edge neurology lab, you're going to have 13% black doctors or that in a private research organization that is trying to develop the next diabetes drug, you're going to have 13% Black specialists in blood or endocrinology or, you know, how we process sugars. And on the behavior front for, for health outcomes, you're not allowed to talk about rates of obesity. You know, we've had this campaign now to say that obesity is, is healthy, which is a complete lie. Uh, but the reason that we say that is because, again, obesity is not evenly distributed among populations, different rates of drug use, compliance with doctor's orders showing up for prenatal care, postnatal care. These things differ. But the only allowable explanation for different health outcomes right now is racism. And what that means is, is that if it is, in fact, not racism that's causing different health outcomes, it is actually behavior and culture things that somebody can change, getting more exercise, losing weight, smoking less, taking less drugs. If you're not allowed to talk about that, you can't fix it. And that means you're not going to be able to lower the higher mortality rates or, or, or illness rates among Blacks. You will be on a crusade to find phantom racism that does not exist. And while you're on your phantom crusade, more Black lives will be lost.
This piece is one of the most famous arias of all time. It's called Die Hölle Rache from Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's opera The Magic Flute. Translated, it means Hell's Vengeance Boils in My Heart. Here it is sung by German soprano Diana Damrau. I think you'll agree, it's hauntingly beautiful. Another section of your book focuses on the world of classical music. You talk about classical music as a sort of microcosm for how disparate impact ideology is impacting all aspects of society. As a personal note, growing up, I was never exposed to classical music, unfortunately. But since we have kids, my wife has spearheaded an effort to change that. All four of our daughters study a classical instrument, both piano and either violin or cello. When we're all cruising down the freeway in our Honda minivan, I'll ask the kids, hey guys, want to hear some Queen or Rush or Scorpions? And inevitably, one of them will say, yuck, dad, put on Vivaldi's Four Seasons. So tell us what's going on in the world of classical music and why we should care. Why is this so important? Well, first of all, let me just say, I love your wife. Uh, Your wife, I'm not sure you deserve her, Alan. Uh, I'm sure your kids do, but she is an absolute hero for giving your children access to what is, in my view, and obviously tastes differ and, and people are very remote from classical music today, but is one of the greatest expressions of of human sublimity and, and pathos and longing and eros and beauty and joy and fury. So, uh, you know, and, but this idiom, the, the long Western tradition of the thing that is different about Western classical music from most other musical traditions across the globe is it has a written it's, it's, there's notation, which allows us to actually know what was the music that was being played and written in the 16th century. That's just an extraordinary thing that that is not possible in other musical cultures. And those written scores provided for an evolution of musical style and expansion of the possibilities of expression that is just unparalleled. So I would highly recommend your listen. We have the, the number of classical music Radio stations is dying. I'm still a radio listener. And if if you've got a, a, a radio station in your area or at this point, everybody listens on a computer, so it doesn't really matter. But when I'm in California, I listen to KUSC out of Los Angeles, which is a truly great station. Uh, and in New York, I listen to WQXR. Both have very creative programming. They're not simply playing the war horses all the time. It would be a good thing before one dies to have been exposed to this music. So anyway, after the George Floyd race riots, classical music, like every other artistic form, whether it was theater, art museums, dance, they all had the same nervous breakdown and they all decided that they had killed George Floyd. Their institutional demographic profile, their historical demographic profile had killed George Floyd and that they were a racist institution. And so you had opera companies putting out statements, beating their chests, saying, my God, we're so racist. Uh, You had the League of American Orchestras leading the charge, saying, 
donors are racist, audiences are racist because they're predominantly white, and composers are racist because they're predominantly white. The tradition that you know led from the medieval monks with Gregorian chants through the development of court music in the Renaissance and more and more just sort of vibrant, ecstatic opera, court music in the 18th century in Europe, and then eventually concerts that were available for the middle classes. Europe was demographically Caucasian. That's just the reality. So it is not surprising that the composers in that tradition, whether it's Bach or Rameau or Beethoven or Chopin or Brahms, you know, Debussy, Granados, these are white composers because Europe was white. Sorry, that's the way it was. But that now, any tradition that is predominantly white is now presumptively racist. Only the West is turning on itself for its demographic history. African drum language, Nigerian drum language, the people playing those drums are all black. Nobody says that African drum language is racist because there's no Chinese classical opera, which for centuries still is performed by Chinese. The Chinese don't go around beating their chests saying we're so racist because there's no Africans in Chinese opera. Balinese gamelan music. It's Indonesians who are, who are doing the monkey chant. Nobody, the, the Balinese do not flagellate themselves for not having, you know, continental East Indians doing the monkey chant. But the West is in such a state of of self-hatred and self-immolation that it's decided that the tradition that gave us Mozart and Beethoven is racist because there are not a proportional number compared to today's population of Blacks. And we are making a huge deal of some of the Black composers who were writing the, the one of the greatest mediocrities that is currently being promoted in order to have Black Lives Matter is an 18th century composer whose father was French from the Caribbean and his mother was Black, Joseph Bologna. He's performed now and programmed ubiquitously. I can recognize a Bologna piece from one note when it comes on the radio because it is so unremittingly banal. But we have the concert programming being changed. Most significantly, you have even the classical music press leading this crusade to teach young people to hear this music as simply a manifestation of racism because it is not demographically pleasing to the race Avengers. And so they're giving young people who already are completely alien to this music because it's no longer has it has no presence in in our our culture except if you're already somebody who loves it and seeks it out it, it, in the mid 20th century there was presence i i write about in the book a black violinist who ended up becoming a conductor at some local symphonies and he grew up in detroit and his school the cast technical high school which was a competitive high school would take its students 
to hear the Detroit Symphony and, and they had music education and he played in the orchestra and he played with kids who'd had private lessons on the violin all their lives. And he said, boy, I've got to really get my act in order and start practicing harder. And so he, he ended up with a career in, in the violin. That doesn't happen anymore. And the other thing that's happening is you have works of, of sublime genius and precious historical value that are being rewritten. So one of the great works of world civilization is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I think your listeners, even if they don't know classical music, would probably recognize the final movement, Ode to Joy, which is a choral, one of the first symphonies that used a chorus in it, very radical at the time for Beethoven. And uh, they'd, they'd recognize that the, uh, the Ode to Joy, because it's been used in many commercials, many Olympic performances and whatnot. Beethoven used a poem by one of the great German Enlightenment poets and dramatists. He's sort of on the borderline between classicism and romanticism, Friedrich Schiller. Uh, and Beethoven set Schiller's On Die Freude uh, to, to joy in this final movement of, of ecstasy and, and human striving and ebullience and sublimity. Well, now we've decided that that's not acceptable. So a feminist crusading conductor uh, stepping down now from the Baltimore Symphony decided that she would commission a different text to the final movement of the Ninth Symphony, went around the world commissioning different texts. And she used for the United States a poem by a Baltimore rapper named Wordsmith, substituting this for the Schiller. It is a work of just extraordinary mediocrity. It's it's about the level of Hallmark card platitudes. And it's absurd because the uniting of the Schiller, it, which is in German, of course, and the Beethoven is what Beethoven wrote. He wrote the music for those words. And he was inspired by that text. And to come in after the fact and, and stick in this piece of poetic drivel is just absurd. But that is the sort of revisionism that's going on. I, I write about a production of Beethoven's only opera, Fidelio, that is an enlightenment paean to freedom and married love and the, the ability to fight back against oppression and the tyrannical despotic power that in the late 18th and early 19th century, a growing nationalist movements were pushing back against absolute unconstrained political power. So Beethoven's Fidelio has now been recast as a all about Black Lives Matter activists. You can see the possible overlap there, but it, it was another just absurd rewriting that actually changed the words of the libretto when it, in the spoken language that they, they have no, the people that do this have no artistic right to do so, but it is all in the name of fighting a phantom because Beethoven's music is not racist. It's not about race. You know, believe it or not, there are many things in the world that are not about race. That is something that we are not allowed to say today. 
When Heather McDonald was describing how the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra had reimagined Beethoven's Ode to Joy in cooperation with rapper Wordsmith, I thought she must have been exaggerating in her critique. So I looked it up on YouTube. And I was surprised to hear for myself that the piece was much, much worse than I ever could have imagined. Blue collar roots show the pride in the city. Be more than just a wire riot, so please forgive me. Home sweet home, city city from the docks. The smell of the crab cakes to a big chicken box. Yeah, this is be more booming on your block. Where a city needed hope, never pity and I quote Put the blame on the system, tell me why it's broke Killing black lives, never treated like the norm So we marching hella strong for the rights that were wrong Can we please get a vote for police to reform? I'm usually not a fan of the phrase that so-and-so would turn over in his grave if he knew what they had done to his work But I'll make an exception in this case You know, this story about Beethoven and Schiller reminds me of the Ayn Rand book, The Fountainhead, which I'm sure you've read. No, I haven't. I've I've started Atlas Shrugged. Uh Okay, so it's a story of the trial of Howard Rourke, who's an architect. And he was on trial for blowing up the building that he designed. And the reason he blew it up was because the developer bastardized his design and changed it from what he had intended. And he felt that the developer had no right to, you know, touch his artistic creation. And the jury jury had to decide if he was guilty or or not. So it's very much like the uh, Beethoven Schiller story. If he could come back and blow up the ninth symphony, he might. Right. Well, opera directors have been doing this for a long time. They've been uh, before George Floyd. And this wasn't all, this wasn't exclusively race related. They would, basically totally rewrite an opera's plot and setting. They would modernize it. They would, they would impose their own adolescent political obsessions, whether it's, you know, LGBTQ stuff or anti-colonialism on opera plots that had nothing to do with it. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And it was the most grotesque wrenching and, and creation of anachronism that started in Europe. That trend has now come into the United States. It's absolutely heartbreaking the type of perversions that they impose on, say, these gorgeous Mozart operas. So that's it's always a question, you know, the the rights of the interpreter versus the author. I believe that the best thing that an interpreter can do is try to give us as close as possible, and this is never completely possible because interpretation is always a creative act, but try to understand what the creator was trying to convey. Your role is not to write a different work. You know, if you don't want to stage Mozart's opera Don Giovanni consistently with its plain meaning, if you want to turn it into a story about ghetto prostitutes and drug addicts, write your own damn opera, you know, don't have your little graffiti scrawlings on genius. So directors and, and performers should understand that they, they are curating a, a, a tradition of exquisite value 
and the best that they can do the 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 their highest value is to try and be the spokesman the, the porte-parole in french for standing between audiences and and the creator we don't really care about you as the interpreter it's it's about the work that you are trying to bring to us This piece is called Eine kleine Nachtmusik and was written by Mozart in 1787. This is possibly Mozart's most famous piece, and interestingly, Mozart never gave it a title. He simply wrote in his notebook that this piece was, quote, a little night music, and that became its official name. Let's talk for a minute about blind auditions. My understanding is this. Classical music used to be considered somewhat of an old boys network, like some sort of stodgy fraternity. Women were feeling locked out of that world, and it took the classical world several decades to accept the idea of blind auditions. Correct me if I'm wrong, but here's what I picture. There's a big screen on the stage, and they put carpeting over the wood floors. The person auditioning walks onto the stage behind the screen so no one can tell what they look like, if they're male or female, white, black, brown, or Asian. The carpeting even prevents the judges from hearing the type of shoes the applicant is wearing, just in case they're wearing heels. The judges can only listen to the quality of their music and have to make their decision based solely on that. Now, this to me sounds like the fairest of all possible systems, and it's hard to believe. They didn't always do that. I mean, this sounds like the kind of system you would want no matter what, at the very least as a way of preventing only the most handsome musicians from getting all the good jobs. You know, beauty privilege is real, and it's a huge problem in our society. Reading your book, I was shocked to learn that there are people trying to dismantle the system of blind auditions. Tell us about that. Well, it's the usual disparate impact idea, the fact that we don't have 13% Black orchestra members means that there's got to be racism somewhere. And so it's the same thing we see again and again. Colorblind tests, if they have a disparate impact, are somehow racist. So, you know, a law school, first-year law school exams, the teacher has no idea who writes them. The, the grading is blind. You just get a number. But if blacks end up at the bottom of the class, it's because the test is racist or the teacher's racist. It's the same with auditions. If we don't have 13% black string players in an orchestra, it must be because this blind audition that nobody could tell who the Raise what the race of the of the auditioners were is still by definition a racist. It's got. To, I mean, these, this is completely illogical. It is contrary to any kind of empirical understanding of reality, and yet that is the sort of thing that is now being argued. And it's the usual problem. The problem is not with the standard that we're tearing down. The problem is with if if we want to call it a problem, what's who's in the pipeline and. The fact of the matter is today, the reality is 
if you are a black performer, an opera singer, a conductor, the Baltimore Symphony just hired Marin Alsop, the one who commissioned the rewritings of the Beethoven's Ode to Joy in the Ninth Symphony. She's now being replaced by a very, very young black conductor. This was foregone conclusion. The Baltimore Symphony has made it very clear that Alsop was going to be replaced by somebody even more intersectional than she was. And I've spoken to somebody in the Baltimore Symphony. This new guy, Jonathan Hayward, is very charming. He's a very uh, affable, has a lovely personality. But the idea that he would be given a position at the head of one of the foremost orchestras is absolutely ludicrous. He does not have the conducting experience. He's over his head. Now, maybe he will mature on the job, but that's what's, that's what's going on. And I would just take exception to your description of orchestras being concerned either with beauty or being stodgy in the past. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that the Vienna Orchestra, every time they came to Carnegie Hall for years, they would be protested by the National Organization of Women as if now has any right to criticize one of the greatest, most historic orchestras in the world uh, because it didn't, it, it was a male orchestra. They decided for their sense of camaraderie, group cohesion, that's what they wanted to be. That's their right. And the idea that a conductor would choose somebody based on looks is ludicrous. The only thing the conductor wants is to uh, have somebody who's not going to blow the exposed horns solo in a Richard Strauss tone poem. You don't see who's in the orchestra pit. It's the conductors are fanatical perfectionists. They they simply want the best possible performer. They are not they are not discriminating at this point. This piece was written by John Williams in 1993 for Steven Spielberg's film masterpiece, Schindler's List. I sometimes think I only love this piece because I associate it with the film, but I was astonished to see our children feeling inspired by the piece as well, even though they have not yet seen the movie. I can't listen to this music without feeling deeply moved, especially by this version played by Itzhak Perlman. Let's turn our attention to the art world. There's one story in your book that really blew my mind. And the story also makes me uh, pretty sad. I feel kind of emotional about it. It's about the Art Institute of Chicago. 
and it has to do with what they did to their staff of, I think it was close to a hundred docents there. Firstly, what is a docent and, and what exactly happened to them? A docent is a volunteer at a museum who is available to give tours to students or individuals. It's, you know, this is free labor. And the docent program at the at the Art Institute of Chicago was extremely rigorous. The docents had to go through what was essentially like getting a master's in art history, learning the extent of the institute's collections, learning the provenance of these works, what style they represented, how they related to each other, what uh, various painters, how they fit into the art historical narrative. The, the tradition began in the 1950s of the docent program at the Art Institute when it was a time of civic activism on the part of females in the in the Chicago area. There'd been a campaign to help the endowment of the Art Institute that had fallen on hard times. And women got involved in fundraising. And they were so effective that they decided, well, we should form a women's board to be part of the Art Institute's governance. And so their first thing, once they formed themselves as a board after this fundraising campaign was, well, we should think about art education. How are we educating our patrons, especially children? And they decided that they would create a volunteer program at the time, most art education was paid. So this was a real boon for the Institute to have volunteer educators that it could use to broaden its reach and impact. And so this was a big part of, and of course, over the years, over the decades from the 60s forward, the docent program included the so-called diversity issues. They got special training in reaching different audiences and presuming that as they were predominantly white females, that somehow as white females, you need training to be able to talk to black students from the South side who may be coming in for an art tour. So it was not as if this was a program that was indifferent to issues of diversity, even though it would have been a good thing if it had been, because I think the whole idea is absurd, but they were doing their best and then, of course, George Floyd hit, and uh, this was another thing that had to go because the docents were predominantly white women. And so it was decided that this was something shameful, and the whole program was shut down. And you went from 100 unpaid volunteers giving just enormous hour, hours and hours and hours each year of instruction to school children and others, the museum decided it could afford to have six paid educators. And of course, they will be chosen on race grounds, not on, on knowledge grounds. And this was an absolute insult. It, it told the women, well, as a consolation prize, we'll give you two years of free membership, but please clear out your lockers right now. <laughs> so it's it's a, just another example of uh, culture turning on itself. There was nothing racist about the program. Anybody could become a docent. And they presented all types of art 
there was nothing exclusionary about it. But now we have going on in institution after institution, white culling. There's a orchestra in, in England, the English touring opera that goes around presenting operas across England for people that can't get into London to get to Covent Garden. And after the George Floyd, because the George Floyd insanity went international, half of the orchestra members were laid off and not given contract renewals simply because they were white. Other, other museums are also culling their docents because they're white. The Crocker Museum in, in Sacramento, California is doing the same thing. So to be white today is to have a target on your back. And to be a straight white male is to be absolutely doomed. If you know anybody's got a straight white male son, he's he's got a very hard hard road ahead of him unless things change, because he is viewed as per se evil. You know the the Dosen story really makes me sad because I picture these one hundred women, a little on the older side, probably retired, for sure retired, and. This being being a docent at the art institute gives their life so much meaning, and a social life, and contact with the younger generation. And I mean, I can't even imagine what it must have felt like to have that ripped away from you because of of your race. Right. Just so sad. A lot of people reading this said, "Well, you know, if if the um, art institute doesn't need this volunteer labor." They don't need my donations either. You know, if they're doing so well that they can just instead pay, why should why should I give any money to this group? That and the head of the Art Institute, James Rondeau, is an is just a fathead. I'm sorry. I I mean, this sounds like it's uh, ad hominem, but I urge readers to read his quotes in my book. I, I spent hours and hours trying to transcribe a speech he gave at the Des Moines Art Institute in Iowa that is utterly incoherent, but he's basically just all tied up in knots over the fact that the Art Institute is well endowed and has an extraordinary collection that has been donated to it over the last 130 years by beneficent Americans. And uh, that makes him feel very guilty at the same time that he's, so he puts himself through and all of his staff through the usual three-day guilt sessions of racial uh, atonement known as diversity trainings. But he's, he's clearly out of his league as far as being the person responsible for this extraordinary collection that the Art Institute possesses. This is Hungarian Dance Number no. 5 by Johannes Brahms.
Let's talk a little bit about the SAT. I feel very passionate about the SAT exam. I took it over 40 years ago, and yet I still remember my exact scores on both the math and verbal sections. It was just really important to me. I took that test extremely seriously, and I studied like crazy for it. I got a very good score, somewhere in the top 1% nationwide. It helped me get into an Ivy League school, even though I was otherwise pretty undistinguished in high school with my grades. So the SAT is you know, part intelligence test, part knowledge, and skills test. It's a good, solid test, which I assume has to be a decent indicator of readiness for college-level work, and probably a good predictor of academic success. And yet more and more schools are either making the SAT optional or even not allowing it. You make the argument in your book that the real goal is to put the SAT completely out of business. Why are they doing that? And what will that cost us as a civilization? Well, it's a, it's a puzzling thing because, yes, you have like the entire University of California system, which is UC Berkeley, UCLA, uh, UC Santa Barbara, San Diego. They have declared that not only are they going test optional, which is what many schools are doing, they actually are banning the submission of SATs. And of course, this all begins in the disparate impact realm. The average black SAT score is about 934 on the 1600 point scale. So, you know, two, two score, two tests, math and reading that have 800 perfect scores. So if you're perfect, your 1600 blacks get there about 450 on each, on each test. That is it's way above a standard deviation below the Asian average, which I think is about close to 1,200. The white average is probably like 1,100. So the SAT, if schools were using colorblind objective tests of merit, has a disparate impact on Blacks. That means it must go. And as you say, the history of the SAT was precisely to overcome discrimination. It was to overcome the bias on the part of the Ivy Leagues in the mid-20th century towards the graduates of Eastern prep schools like Andover and Exeter and Groton and Choate. And it allowed talented people from the Midwest, say, that had just gone to their local public schools to show that they actually had academic talent that was exceeding that of the preppy types that were being funneled into Yale. So, for a while, you know, we had this argument, well, if Blacks are scoring poorly on the SAT, it must be because the tests are culturally biased. Well, that's, that argument has been made for decades. They scour the SATs for anything that could possibly presume some kind of economic exclusive domain of knowledge. You know, the, like the, the paradigm imaginary SAT reading comprehension test that refers to a regatta, you know, a, a boat race for those that skull on the Thames. Um, you know, those those questions, if they ever existed, have been thrown out decades ago. Any test score that has a particular to any test question that has a particularly wide racial variance is thrown out. So this is not a racially biased test. But why are the schools actually now banning them? This is a puzzle because what currently goes on, what's been going on with 
college admissions for decades is race norming. That is, the schools have one, one curve for whites and Asians. So they'll say, you know, if you're white or Asian, you're going to be clustering at the top of the SAT. We won't consider you if you have, let's say, below a 1100 on your SATs combined on, an, on the 1600 score. You have to be above that. If, if you're 1100, it's just too low for us. You, you go, go someplace else. This is the school for you. Blacks and Hispanics are judged on a completely different curve. It's barely overlapping. You will be considered not only if you have an 1100, but if you have, arguably, if you have that 900, they're still going to look at you. So using the SAT does not prevent you from implementing very large and very consequential racial preferences. But having the SAT is useful for ordering members of each racial group within that group. So you've got one set of standards for whites and Asians. Within that group, you want to know who are the top Asians and who are the top whites. So you're going to take from that pool. Within the Black and Hispanic pool, you've got a different curve, but you still want to be taking the top Blacks and Hispanics on that different curve. So having the SAT doesn't prevent you from race norming and from using preferences, but it gives you valuable information. So why are these schools saying we don't even want that information? It doesn't make sense. It's not in their interest. And the reason that I posit is they want to put the body that administers the SAT, which is called the college board, they want to put it out of existence. Right now, the college board exists because people pay money to it to take the tests. I don't know whether the schools themselves pay anything. But if nobody takes the SAT anymore because it's banned, the college board will go out of existence and there won't be an SAT anymore. And that is what we want because the SAT provides us with objective data about the skills gap. It provides us with an alternative explanation to racism for why Google is only 1.5% Black engineers rather than 13%. It's because Blacks' SAT math scores are so low. Again, the average combined score is 934. So the Black average math SAT score is is probably under 450 because they do worse on math and on reading. So it's it's all about making sure that it is no will no longer be possible to have any alternative explanation than racism to racial disparities. This piece is called Gymnopédie No. 1 and was written by French composer Eric Satie in 1888. Some feel sad when they hear this song. Some feel nostalgic. Others peaceful and some even happy. 
Like Fir Elise and Pachelbel's canon, its beauty and power lies in its utter simplicity. My final question for you, I'd like to talk a little bit about the abolition of so-called gifted and talented programs in middle and high schools. I got into one of those programs when I was in school. My school called it the SP program, which stood for special progress. Nothing was that hard or challenging about it. At least I never noticed anything which strained anyone too much. I suspect that it was just a way to do something we're not supposed to talk about anymore. What what Thomas Sowell calls sorting and labeling. We humans are sorting and labeling machines. That's all we do, even if we don't realize we're doing it. I have a theory about this that I want to run by you. You know, when people say, oh, that public school in that neighborhood is really good. What do they really mean when they say that? Do they mean that the teachers in that particular school are really so much better than the teachers in other schools? I don't think so. I think what they really mean when they say that is that the other families at that school are mostly people who place a strong emphasis on the importance of academic achievement. And I want my kids to hang around with other kids whose parents think doing well in school is the most important thing. It's a way of sorting my kids away from the kids whose families don't emphasize education. And gifted programs are a way of doing that sorting within the school itself. What do you think? Am I onto something here or am I off base? I think that's a very interesting observation. Again, the reason we're taking dismantling gifted and talented programs is a disparate impact. They are not racially proportionate. Asians today way, way dominate. You know, it used to be Jews would dominate. Now Asians are whooping even Jews' ass. It's quite extraordinary. But as far as the sorting, I think, you know, that's certainly what's going on with flight to the suburbs. I mean, basically, also, it could be within the same school, so that's different. But people don't want to have their kids go to school with inner city kids because they are not socialized by their parents. And um, it's it's viewed as racist or white flight. It's not. It's simply a absolutely justified response to the understanding that schooling is a limited time, precious time. And, you know, it, it, the the school environment is created by the students and the willingness of, of teachers to teach and to discipline. But as far as wanting to have a peer group that shares the values that you hope to inculcate into your student, I think that's a very good idea, a, a good explanation. I think it also is, though, in some instances, I assume that these programs are, in fact, of a different magnitude academically, and they really are accelerated and allow students to achieve their potential because there are differences in academic gifts. Sorry, there are people who are simply light years ahead of others in terms of mathematical capacities. And males and females differ on that, the high end and the low end, the most 
acute mathematical thinkers at the very, very top end are disproportionately male. I don't take offense at that. I don't feel that I need to have a chip on my shoulder. It is simply the way it is. And there are across groups, there's individuals within each group that are better than others. There's a cognitive talent is not equally distributed. And when we're shutting down these programs now, whether it's Lowell High School in San Francisco or Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia, we are holding back our future scientists, our future engineers, our future people. If you, if climate change is your thing, you know, the people that will maybe discover a truly endless source of power without any kind of environmental impacts. This will be a huge engineering problem, whether it's hydrogen or fusion or fission. We are saying we don't want to stimulate you to your maximum because your classmates are not proportionally diverse and you are too white or too Asian. So too bad. You're going to have to wait to study calculus in the hope that your black and Hispanic peers will catch up. And they don't delaying the most advanced students from speeding ahead and and testing their capacities to the utmost does not help close the achievement gap. Your book hits so many important hot button topics and I'm going to do everything in my power to encourage people to read it and more importantly, to talk about it with others. Part of the reason I started this podcast is that I realized that simply educating myself endlessly, which is generally a good thing, If I don't share what I'm learning with others, it's kind of like the tree which falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear the sound that it makes. What's the point of filling my head with all these great ideas if the the ideas don't live in the wider conversation? So I'm going to share quotes from your book on Twitter and keep promoting it whenever I can. Before I let you go, I want to acknowledge you for something. Thomas Sowell's books are a masterclass in clear and rigorous thinking so are yours. Thank you for not just educating us on certain subjects, but also for modeling how to think rigorously. Heather McDonald, thank you for joining me on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you so much, Alan. And I I love to be associated with that name of Thomas Sowell. So that's an extraordinary privilege for me to be on your podcast and that is created in, in his honor. Thank you for that. This has been episode 31 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast, Disparate Impact with Heather McDonald. I encourage you to stick around for the intense and passionate musical ending of this episode, featuring the true to the original Ode to Joy chorus composed by Ludwig von Beethoven. I defy anyone to not feel uplifted and inspired by this piece. I'm Alan Wolin. Thanks for listening. Freude, 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 Freude,
Wir betreten Feiertrunken in Lichen ein Heiligtum. Deine Zauber winden wieder, was die Mode streng getrennt. Alle Menschen werden Brüder und ein Sand verflügelt. Deine Zauber winden. 